Last summer we had a sermon series on the questions of God or something along those lines in which we examined ways that our Lord questions us. So, for example, as we will be reminded today, the Lord comes to Adam in the garden. Oh, Adam, where are you? It's not a question for the Lord's benefit. It's a question for Adam's benefit. And I just realized that this psalm that we just sang and the arrangement as Nathan Clark George has it, has us asking repeatedly, Who is this glorious king? Who is this glorious king? Who is this glorious king? It's a question not for the benefit of the king. It's a question for us who are prone to answer all too quickly, well, the Lord, the Lord. And so we ask again, who? No, really. Who is this glorious king? And what does it mean that we answer the Lord? I know that sounds like a Danism. And it is. But I pray that you will recognize by the time we are finished today, that you will recognize, oh, he's tricky. He had us thinking about the conclusion before he even started the sermon. Today is Lent, the first Sunday of Lent. Lent, as some of you probably know, begins with what is known as Ash Wednesday, traditionally. It's a season in which we stop and give more uh, intentional attention uh, to who we are and what it is about us that necessitated the mighty works of the Lord's great love in the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a whim wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just that the members of the triune God said to one another, as we might say to one another, hey, let's go to a movie tonight. There was something of cosmic urgency and necessity that compelled the triune God to gift to us out of his great love part of himself, Jesus, the Son of the living God, who suffered, as we will be celebrating in the next several weeks, died, was buried, raised again from the dead for our salvation, and reigns today to make all things new. What could have been of such magnitude of such urgency to require such a stunning act. And that 
is the question that we begin to give attention to uh, through this season that we call Lent. And this year, we're going to have a Lenten series in which we, dis- in which we explore uh, the pattern of our enemy's deceit by which we ourselves are dying and are destroyed. How is it that the enemy sows the seeds of our destruction in our lives? Or more to the point, how is it that we participate together with the enemy in sowing and cultivating the very seeds of our destruction? That's the question before us in our Lenten series. And we're going to explore that question so that together we may together grow to marvel marvel more fully and rejoice more audibly, shall I even say audaciously, and live more hopefully as we anticipate the celebration and the continuing celebration of Christ's death and resurrection by which the enemy's deceit is exposed and his destruction undone. And so today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. My prayer is that you will resist the temptation to tune out because it's a story that is so familiar to us. And that by faith you will tune in. Because here in the account of Adam and Eve's temptation and fall, we find the account of our own daily temptations and fall. And once we see the the seminal pattern uh, unfolding for us in Genesis chapter 3, we discover that we will encounter this, that we do encounter it on a regular basis. And we will discover that our hope now, as then, is not that we can adequately cover our shame or run far enough or hide ourselves deep enough in the forest. But our hope is in the very faithfulness, goodness, and wisdom and love of the one whose faithfulness, goodness, and wisdom and love we have been doubting. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is not that we go to church somewhere on Sunday. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is not that we are so wise as to know that our hope is not that we go to somewhere on Sunday. Our hope is not that we are less fickle and frail and faithless than we are. Our hope, as I hope we will see today, is that He is far more faithful and loving and generous than our suspicious doubts dare allow us to imagine. So read with me, if you will, Genesis chapter 3, the first 13 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, that is the Lord, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The account goes on, but we will end there. This is the word of the Lord. And I know that for those of us with our North American sensibilities, it doesn't sound very good, it doesn't feel very good, but indeed, it is good news. Because it is the word of the Lord who has shown himself repeatedly to be our loving God, that we may know him. So let's ask by his spirit that we may indeed hear him speak. And so, Father, we come to this, your word, in this place that you have set aside, in this hour that you have set for us, your people, to gather in your presence to hear you speak. Grant to us, Father, by your Spirit, faith and courage and humility. Father, to hear you speak so that as you created by the word of your power, we may indeed live by the word of your power. Protect us from error and feast us upon the bounty of your truth, the truth of your love in Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I am not um, a music aficionado. I, I like music, but you know, especially when you have somebody like Scott Finch in the congregation, you have to be honest about what you know and don't know about music. 
And what I do know about music is that there's a lot of strange dots on a piece of paper. And what I also know about music is when people who understand what those strange dots do, I really like the effect of it. Because it's beautiful and it's stunning. One of my favorite pieces, I think I've mentioned it before, is um, Bolero, or however you pronounce that, uh, by Ravel. It's really a very simple rhythm. It's this, this, this 15 minute or 18 minute piece, depending on the tempo you choose to play it. But it's this 15 or 18 minute piece that actually just rests on a very simple rhythm. And that plays again and again and again and again. And over top of that lays a very simple, really, melody. And these two things go on and on and on and on. It's a very simple pattern, very simple rhythm, repeatedly played at increasing volume, depending on who the conductor is, sometimes increasing tempo, with a wide variety of instruments entering in and coming out and laying over top of each other at different times. Some of you may have heard it. It's a fascinating piece, and the reason it comes up in this context is because it helps us to see the complexity of something very simple repeated in a variety of ways. In other symphonies and orchestras, you all know that often there are themes that get played by different instruments at different times. Sometimes those themes are inverted. Sometimes the themes are cast in a different key. Sometimes those themes are, are played backwards as the symphony progresses. And yet, it's the same theme. The deceits of our enemy by which we quite happily participate in sowing and cultivating the seeds of our own destruction are like that. It really is a very simple pattern. As crafty as the serpent may have been among the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made, as our passage says, he's not very creative. He just takes a very simple pattern and he repeats it again and again and again. Sometimes the pattern is very slow. Sometimes it's very fast. Sometimes it's inverted. Sometimes it's mixed up. Sometimes it's played by this instrument. Sometimes by that instrument. Sometimes in this circumstance. Sometimes in that circumstance. Sometimes at a high pitch. Sometimes at a low pitch. It's a simple pattern played repeatedly in the circumstances of our lives at a variety of pitches and tempos and volumes. But once we have familiarized ourselves with a simple pattern, like a good music teacher who is helping you understand a symphony, do you hear this pattern? Let me play it for you on the piano. Do you hear it? Now listen for it. 
And you've seen, perhaps, perhaps you've even experienced the eyes of discovery as, as children who are listening to this new symphony, they discover, I hear the pattern. I, I hear it. There it is. It's the piccolo. There it is. It's the trumpet. That's right. And so we grow in our appreciation. Once we have familiarized ourselves with the simple pattern, we find ourselves more easily recognizing it as it plays out in the circumstances of our own relationships and responsibilities, conversations, and commitments. It's helpful to know the ways of our crafty enemy. And so let's look at that as it unfolds for us here in Genesis chapter 3. We notice that what the enemy is doing in, right at the get-go, we know it, we call it this all the time, the deceit of our enemy. Look how he does this. Our writer makes it very clear right in the middle of verse 1. He, he introduces the story with this fascinating sentence. Now the serpent was more crafty than, <clears throat> than any other beast of the field that, that the Lord God had made. Now, in typical um, fashion for a biblical author, he just makes this, makes this sort of throwaway comment that we just pass over. We think he's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, he's just introducing it. The Lord God made all these things. But he's saying this. The Lord God made. Because look what he does in the next sentence. He, that is the serpent, although there's some debate about that, but I'm not getting into that. He, that is the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say? Do you see what happened? Look at it again. Our writer introduced the story by saying that the Lord God had made. And the serpent in beginning his deceit, says, did God actually say? Do you see what happens? As the, Lord, as, as the enemy begins his ways upon us, he separates the office of God from the character of God. You see, because the word God here is just the Hebrew word Elohim. It's just a generic term for transcendent being, for supreme being. The author wants us to know that in fact, however, the supreme being by whose power all things came into being is none other than the Lord God Yahweh Elohim, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who came to Abram and called to Abram and said, come and go with me and I will show you a land and I will make your name great. That's the God who is in view here. And our enemy very subtly and very quietly separates for us the character of God 
from the office of God. And then, having done that, he sets about leading us to assassinate that character. Notice what he says. The ESV reads, did God actually say? One commentator says, it's given English idiomatic expressions, you might read it like this to get the sense here. He sidles up to the woman as she's walking in the garden. So, I heard that God actually said, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? <laughs> that, that can't be possible. Are you serious? I mean, I'm not God or anything, but I mean, if that's what he said. Surely, he's not that ridiculous. But who am I? I'm just a serpent. I'm just saying. It seems strange. Hadn't really, hadn't really thought of it that way. And so we begin to suspect his wisdom. Yeah, he didn't seem as wise as I thought originally. And his goodness. I thought he was a pretty cool guy. I mean, I was just walking with him yesterday. And his trustworthiness. Is he hiding something from me? Has he got a control issue, this God guy? I bet he thinks he's in charge of everything, doesn't he? Huh. Some sort of power trip. So he simply suggests, and he lets her draw her own conclusions. There's, there's nothing more irresistible than the sensation of being one's own man or one's own woman, as the case might be. There's nothing quite as irresistible as the sense of thinking on my own and drawing my own conclusions. Not being told by anyone what to do or what to believe. I'm my own man. And so it's in this connection that we should note Satan really doesn't care whether or not you and I believe Jesus. He 
as long as you believe that you're believing Jesus, so to speak. As long as you believe that you are in charge of what you believe, who you believe, when you believe, and when you will bow your knee in submission to that. Believe Jesus all you want. And don't believe him all you want. It doesn't matter because you're your own man. If Jesus works for you, that's great. We're glad. We're glad Jesus works for you. You make your own decisions. Don't let him tell you what to do. Be your own man. Or you see, in that case, if we do that, our enemy is quite happy for then he has more thoroughly deceived us into thinking that we are faithful followers of Jesus. When in fact, like Judas and the Pharisees, we find that we are co-opting the good fruit of Jesus' wisdom to clothe our own pursuit of our own agendas. The deceit of our enemy is the mother of all ad hominem arguments. You know what an ad hominem argument is? If you don't like the content of an argument, attack the person. If you can't refute the content of an argument, attack the person. Our nation nowadays loves ad hominem arguments because it's all we have left. If we can discredit or dismiss the person, then their words become irrelevant. And so it is, having, having assassinated or having led the woman to assassinate the character of the one whose word was spoken, he now sets about twisting and redefining and distorting is it true you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, let's look at the, uh, let's look at the original command. Verse 17, excuse me, verse 16 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's the same word, every and any. Did, the Lord, did God actually say you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? In a, in a subtle twist of the words, he finds, he leads her to believe, in fact, the exact opposite of what was said. And then he dis, distorts it, and in that, in that um, with exaggeration, the any tree in the garden. Well, she says, we may eat of the, fruit, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you not shall not eat of that, of that tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see, once you doubt the character of someone, there's, you won't believe anything they say. Good, bad, or indifferent... Once you believe that they're a bad person, there's nothing they can say to change your mind. The 
The more things change, the more they stay the same. Our enemy is completely fine with us thinking that the foundation of his deceit, the foundation of his deceitful work in our own life is a superficial focus upon the particular words of God. That is secondary. For if we grant him the terms of the debate, speaking of God in the abstract and suspecting the goodness and wisdom and trustworthiness of that God, then he knows that no matter what our relative to position on inerrancy and infallibility, we will always set ourselves up as judge and jury of the word. Because the one who speaks is not good, wise, or trustworthy. We will obey that which we find agreeable, and we will celebrate God as being agreeable, and we will dismiss that which we find to be unreasonable or absurd, and we will cluck our tongues that the wise, good, and trustworthy God is not reasonable. So listen carefully to those who seek to wiggle out from under the plain sense of Scripture. They are either seeking to undermine or redefine the character of God or exalt their own character as the measure of all things. I had an experience like this, not recently, several years ago, and I've used this example before and I'll use it again, where uh, Scripture clearly calls us, as we were reminded last week by Steve Corbett, Scripture clearly calls us to love the poor is very clear. And so, because I'm a faithful pastor, I was speaking to one of our deacons at the time and said, it was pretty clear, but hey, it's not as simple as it sounds. It's pretty complex. I'm just trying to figure out what it looks like. And in a characteristic moment, of clarity, my dear friend said to me, oh, you know what it looks like. You just don't want to do it. And he was right. Because it's not as complex as our deceived little hearts want us to think that it is. It's not as complex to love one another as our deceived little hearts want us to think that it is. It's not as complex to love our neighbors as ourselves, as our deceived little hearts want us to think that it is. We're just not sure that God is good, wise, and trustworthy in issuing such a command. Having undermined the character and twisted the word, he turns now to flatter us. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. Imagine the possibilities. You are gifted. You have so much more potential than God is allowing you. If you just reach out and take that right there, imagine the places you will go. 
Your name will be great. You'll be remembered for eternity. Oh, yeah, she will. And she thinks, wow, it's so easy. They say there's no free lunches, but boom, here it is. An apple. And I'll be like, God. It doesn't say apple. Forgive me. Fruit. I could really be somebody. And so then he sets before us, having had this conversation, he sort of sets before us this opportunity. Having successfully set upon her the spectacles of doubt and suspicion and flattery and the possibilities of greatness, he sets before her the opportunity to realize her greatest dreams. And so she looks. Verse 6. The tree is good for food. It's a true statement. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that repeatedly. It's true. It's good. It was good. That it was a delight to the eyes. That's true. It was a delight to the eyes. And it was a tree that was to be desired to make one wise. It's true. What she did not see, what she did not account for, was the goodness and wisdom and trustworthiness of the one who had designed her and designed that tree. You see, seeing well and evaluating poorly she saw rightly, but she failed to account for all the data. She saw the tree for what it was, but she failed to see the one who made the tree. You see, the effect of the serpent's deceit is that we trust our impressions rather than, his, than our Lord's instruction, our wisdom rather than his word. And thus it is in our own circumstances that we often rightly see and name circumstances. Pastor, you have no idea how difficult my marriage is. Right statement. That's true. One, I don't know. And two, I suspect that it is extremely difficult. But we need to account for the one who has created the marriage. Pastor, you have no idea how difficult and how ornery my parents are. I, I know. Actually, I know some of your parents. So I do know. But I also know the one who has created my parents, created your parents, and gave them to us. It's part of his goodness and wisdom and trustworthiness. Oh, no, pastor, don't go putting that off on God. I love him. Indeed. And so, failing to account for our God, we take and we eat and we give. So she took of the fruit and ate 
and she also gave. Hey, she says, take this and eat this, for in this is life and wisdom and goodness. Such a simple act, one commentator says, such a simple act, so hard and costly it's undoing. For God will taste poverty and death before take, eat, and give become verbs of salvation and joy again. You see what's happening? It's so easy for us to hear words and distort words and rearrange words and so then come to look at our experiences and name them some in varying degrees of accuracy and saying, this is truth. This is how to understand this situation. This is how to understand this person. Take and eat it and you too will live and understand and be wise together with me. And so we sow and cultivate and spread abroad the seeds of our own destruction. And the effect, of course, is our shame. Suddenly, we actually do know things that we didn't know before. Not least of all, our own nakedness. Our own foolishness. Our own frailty. And our own guilt. which causes us to run and hide and cover and fear and accuse and blame shift and, as we will see in the course of our series, murder. It's so amazing how we see it again and again and again. Just recently, uh, our Little League basketball season ended. And I tell you what, if you want to see aggression... You watch 10 and 11-year-old girls play basketball. You'll see some aggression. But you want to see you want to see 10 and 11-year-old girls learning to do what you and I do so well, then watch little league basketball. There's one who is learning to be very aggressive. And she's learning how to hide her aggression. And so she will do the whole football blocking move and like send her opponent shooting across the court and then she'll do this number. I don't know, ref. She must have not had her shoes tied. I want to go up to her and said, dude, you just you gotta be a little bit more subtle. Let me show you how. <laughs> the issue at stake here, brothers and sisters, is actually not directly in our passage. It plays throughout our passage and is referenced in our passage. 
Verse 11. In the Lord's gracious querying of his people, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, being the practical North Americans that we are, oh, what did you do? But listen carefully to the question. Did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, Eve, it's me. It's me here. I'm the one that issued this. Do I not love you? Have I not shown you that I love you? Have I not shown you that I care, that you grow and you flourish? It's me. Go back and look again. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, You may eat of every tree in the garden. But of this one tree, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For it is dangerous. And if you do, you will surely die. Why? The fruit was poisonous. That was the issue. No. The tree is but the occasion for us to, to query ourselves, as it were. To say, to say, who is my God? Not just identifying who he is, but what is his character toward me? Is he indeed the loving God that I know him to be? Is he indeed the good God that I know him to be? Is he indeed the wise God that I know him to be? Is he indeed the trustworthy God I know him to be? Because, brothers and sisters, that's the seed of our enemy's deceit. Think about it. As Adam and Eve wandered about the garden, they see the tree and they wonder, is he in fact as good and wise and trustworthy as we know him to be. So think about this. The tree there is always confronting Adam and Eve with this question, who made you? Is he good, wise, trustworthy, and loving? Can you trust his designs and his plans and his purposes for your good and for your flourishing and for his own glory? And so when you begin to recognize that, now think. Think about any command. Think about any command in Scripture. Think about any command in Scripture. And the base is the same. Honor your father and your mother, which I've just referred to a few minutes ago. Most of us know our parents are profound sinners. Why would I want to honor them? They're not honorable. Well, is your God good Wise, trustworthy, and loving? I bet he knows something you don't. Imagine that. So, if I walk in obedience to honor a people 
who show themselves to be not honorable, do you think I might learn something from that? Yes, you might actually grow in your knowledge and experience of the love of the triune God himself. What about another one? Absorb the insult. You know, the whole hand-slapping thing that, Dr., that Mr. Corbett referred to yesterday, last week, right? Absorb the insult. What? Well, the question is this. Has God shown himself to be the good, wise, and trustworthy God that he is? Or are you more wise and gooder and more trustworthy than he is? I meant to do that, Anne, to demonstrate that I don't have my grammar intact. What about forgiving seven times, 70 times? Clearly, God got out of control on that one. Go all the way through. Because in every one, we are repeatedly confronted with the increasingly undeniable dimensions of our own inabilities to obey the undeniable unworthiness of the other to benefit from our obedience. And we're pressed into the love of the Father. And so the enemy's pattern of attack is to sow seeds of doubt with regard to the character of God which necessarily puts us in a position to be the judge over God. And so sets us up to choose our own way and our own timing of obedience. G.K. Chesterton tells the story of a friend who, who quipped to him about another person, Oh, he'll do fine. He really believes in himself. Which, of course, Chesterton writes, the, recounts this story, by the way, in Orthodoxy. Which, of course, is the great measure of mental health in our own culture. The great aim of mental health in our own culture. To believe in yourself. To give yourself credit. Have some self-confidence. If only believed in yourself and your own wisdom and goodness and trustworthiness, well, you could really make something of yourself. You could really go places. Chesterton says this, Shall I tell you where the men are who believe in themselves? For I can tell you. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. It was like my middle-aged friend who found himself between jobs dressed as a Harry Potter character punching tickets at Universal Studios. And he was asked by one of his co -work, co -work, uh, young 20-something co-workers, what are you doing here? You could really make something of yourself. You could really believe in yourself. Brothers and sisters, that's a recipe for death. It's a recipe for destruction. 
Our problem is that we believe all too much in ourselves. Having dismissed the good, wise, and trustworthy and loving character of the one who made us, the one who designed us, and the one who guides us. So, Father, we pray.